Welcome to the MHB Podcast. This is Michael Bond, and welcome to my 122nd episode. In this episode, I want to study Isaiah chapter 53. This is likely the most famous chapter in the book of Isaiah, and perhaps the most famous chapter in the Old Testament. This is the fourth of Isaiah's servant songs. I noted in the previous episode that this servant song begins with the final three verses of chapter 52. So if you haven't read those verses, you should go back and check them out. The Old Testament prophets, by the power of the Holy Spirit, were directed to speak about two major events, the suffering of Christ and the glory that would follow. The stories of the Old Testament are like a groundwork of foreshadowing that led to the arrival of Jesus. Even Christ himself provided exposition of Moses and the prophets, showing how all of them pointed to him. They were inspired servants of God who heralded the coming of their king. There is nowhere else in the Old Testament where the suffering of Christ and the glory that followed are laid out as plainly as in this chapter. This is the gospel of Christ Jesus more than 700 years before he came to earth. This chapter shows us that Christ, as the suffering servant, was not glorious or beautiful in worldly consideration. Those who could not recognize him for who he is treated him contemptuously. His message generated massive prejudice and deep-seated hatred against him. In some circles, it still does today. But all of this reproach melted away, and his suffering was cast in immortal honor. Jesus is exalted and lifted up because he is God. By going to the cross, he did the will of the Father. By going to the cross, he made atonement for the sins of humanity. Jesus is God, reaching out to us so that we may be in communion with him. Fully God and fully human, Jesus is the sinless mediator between the fallen world and a holy God. Christ shouldered his cross and endured his suffering with patient silence. Long before his incarnation, God knew what he had to do to restore humanity to himself. Jesus prospered in this work because of his willingness to suffer on our account. His work resulted in immortal glory because his work was motivated by love. With faithful eyes, you can read this chapter for intimate insight into Christ crucified and Christ glorified. With faithful eyes, you can read this chapter and get a sense of the infinite depth of his love for you. You can see that by conquering death and ratifying the gospel with his resurrection, Christ rose up for our salvation. Let's read verses 1-3. through Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. In the previous chapter, we saw Isaiah predict the kind of reception the gospel of Christ would receive in the Gentile world. We saw that entire nations would rejoice at it. We saw that kings would understand who Jesus is and fall silent against him. These were people who had not seen him and were given no prophecies concerning him. You would think if they knew ahead of time about the gospel grace, then their expectations would be elevated and they would be disposed to receive it. 
On the contrary, the Gentiles knew virtually nothing of Jesus, yet many of them received the gospel in its full value. The Jews who were educated on the topic of the coming Messiah rejected Jesus. These religious elite had access to the prophecies concerning Christ, and many of them had the opportunity of personally knowing him and seeing him with their own eyes. When you hear this, it makes you wonder, if they were so educated, why were they unable to recognize him? Our modern society has a default setting of deferring to the experts. This is very useful on a technological level. If you're sick, you want a doctor, not some random person off the street. But the truth is that experts are only good in narrow fields of inquiry. For example, earning a degree in medicine isn't going to make you any more knowledgeable in philosophy. But what it can do is make you a whole lot more arrogant. Intellectual arrogance is what blinds many people to the truth of God. Intellectual arrogance breeds ideology. Ideology is the false certainty that you know enough to understand and manipulate ultimate reality. An ideology is an incomplete system of belief that claims to solve a problem completely. The collectivist neo-Marxism we see emerging in left-wing politics is an ideology. It's no accident that this ideology is being revitalized inside the universities, home of some of the most intellectually arrogant of our society. It was this intellectual arrogance, combined with a holier-than-thou virtue signaling, that prevented the Jews from recognizing Christ when he stood right in front of them. You will seldom find someone more stupid than an intelligent person who thinks he knows everything. The gospel of Christ was met with contempt from the Jews. It was accepted by many of the Gentiles. But even considering the success it had in the Gentile world, on the broadest level of analysis, more rejected it than received it. There are billions of Christians in the world today. Something like 80% of Americans report themselves to be Christian. But when you consider the global population stretched out across millennia, the comparative number of people who accept the gospel is few. We are truly blessed to live in the time that we do. I don't think most people understand how absolutely cruel humanity can be. If anything, we are in danger of thinking the Judeo-Christian values that have been painstakingly inculcated in our society are just the way humans are naturally. People who say humans are inherently good suffer this delusion. In the broader history, most people who heard the gospel rejected it. It's not as if the gospel is whispered in secret or confined to the churches either. It's shouted out and proclaimed for all to hear. You would think a message like the gospel would be universally accepted, but the human heart is desperately wicked. Very few people believed the Old Testament prophets when they proclaimed the future Messiah. When he was actually here on earth, the religious scholars scoffed at him. The apostles brought the gospel to many nations, and some people in each nation believed, but comparatively very few. Even today, there are many who profess faith in Christ, but not as many who show evidence of that faith in action. I want to be careful not to sound too negative here. It's a dangerous game playing who's the better Christian. There was only one perfect Christian and we crucified him. When I speak of evidence of faith, I don't mean philanthropic works or church volunteerism. I mean love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So why doesn't everyone have faith? According to scripture, it's because the arm of the Lord is not revealed to everyone. 
If you lack the humility to see and hear, then you will not be able to discern the divine power that is in God's word. But it's not as if God is hiding himself from certain people. Jesus publicly performed miracles, the resurrection chief among them, to confirm the veracity of his gospel. The Spirit of God is not revealed to everyone because some people rebel against the light they already have. If you forfeit the grace of God, then the grace of God is withheld from you. The plight of the unrepentant is that they really just don't know what they're missing. It is as if they are dying of thirst in the wilderness because they refuse to imbibe the oasis that's right in front of them. We don't know what Jesus physically looked like, but we do know that his appearance was not impressive by cultural or worldly standards. Some of his Jewish listeners rejected his gospel on the basis of his very average appearance. When you listen to preachers today, you should always focus more on the message and less on the messenger. Unfortunately, there are some speakers who can give bad messages but look really good doing it. So, the people who heard Jesus preach his gospel, if they didn't agree with the gospel, had few other reasons to continue listening. This is not to say that Christ was an inadequate preacher. Contrarily, he was known for teaching as one who had authority. Teaching with authority is probably rather easy when you're God. The point about Christ's lowly appearance is that he humbled himself to come to earth. In point of fact, even if he had taken on the most beautiful human form, it would have been a vast downgrade for him. The Jews probably had high expectations of what their Messiah would look like. The suffering servant certainly was not one of them. The religious elite expected their Messiah to be very great and noble. His heritage was the line of King David, whose name was as great as any of the formidable men on earth. Christ does come from the line of David, but at the time he was born, the stature of this family tree had been greatly reduced. Joseph, the Virgin Mary's husband, was an impoverished carpenter and most of his relatives were fishermen. Christ was born in Bethlehem, but spent his boyhood in Nazareth, which was in the northern territory called Galilee. This was a small and insignificant place. The kind of place you think of when you think nothing good could ever come from there. Christ wasn't born into a wealthy and influential house, yet he is both the root and the offspring of King David. The religious scholars thought the Messiah's entrance onto the scene would be grandiose, full of pomp and circumstance. But Christ grew up quietly under the omniscient eyes of the Father and not the eyes of humanity. His upbringing is likened to that of a tender plant, which one might crush or nip in a single moment. The person who has been worshipped all across the world for thousands of years started his life as an insignificant boy from an insignificant town. The religious elite expected their Messiah to be uncommonly beautiful and charming to look at. Vanity is the way of the world. But Jesus was average in the sense that he'd just be another face in the crowd. His appearance wasn't what the world thought of when considering an incarnate God. Those who saw Christ throughout his earthly life didn't note anything that would make him stand out from any other average person. Contrast the humble appearance of Christ with that of Moses and David. Moses was said to be exceedingly beautiful from birth. David was of a handsome countenance and pleasant to look at when he was anointed king of Israel. But the Lord Jesus revealed nothing of his infinite glory in the way he carried himself on earth. The Jews also thought their Messiah would live a life of abundant pleasures. They thought all manner of people would be attracted to him because of the worldly delights that surrounded him. But Jesus didn't have any of these things. 
Jesus lived a life of sorrows, and he was well acquainted with grief. His manner of death was not the only tragedy for him. Rather, his whole life was a sad story. Christ was made sin for us, so he paid the consequences of sin without ever having sinned himself. Adam's punishment for rebelling against God was to eat in sorrow all the days of his life. Undoubtedly, Christ's sacrifice of taking the extent of sin onto himself released us from the extremity of this sentence. By many accounts, the life of Jesus was sorrowful. He was unsettled, and there was no place for him to rest his head. He lived on alms, which means he lived on the money and food that was given to the poor. There were many people who opposed his gospel and maligned his character. And maybe most difficult of all was his patient endurance of sinners who contradicted his sinless self. We never see Jesus laughing in scripture, although we see him crying several times. The Roman official Lentulus, who might have been a contemporary of Jesus, penned a letter to the Roman Senate in which he said Jesus was never seen to laugh. Jesus quite literally carried the weight of the world on his shoulders. His intimate acquaintance with grief was likely a consequence of the fact of his immense compassion for others. He felt their pain. He also never denied his own. Even during his transfiguration, he spoke of his incoming death. Even in triumph, he wept for Jerusalem. Those who looked upon Jesus and judged him by the sight of their eyes failed to see his beauty. Christ did in fact have so much beauty that he would be the desire of all nations. But his beauty was found in his holiness and in his goodness. His beauty could not be seen with the eyes because his beauty is spiritually discerned. People whose primary motivation is worldly gain see nothing compelling in Jesus Christ. The suffering servant didn't have the air of a powerful and dominant person, which is ironic because he is in fact the most powerful and most dominant person. Those who sought to ascend in the carnal things of this world not only found Christ unappealing, but they very much despised him. At best, they didn't want to be seen with him. At worst, they totally dehumanized him. He was the stone whom the builders of this world rejected. For many people, the problem was simply that they would not have this person reign over them. That was unacceptable. And maybe it's because they wanted to be their own gods. Regardless, these were people who had every opportunity not to trample a man in misery, and yet they did it. The suffering of Jesus didn't move them at all. But it was worse than that. Not only were they indifferent to his suffering, but they actually loathed and detested him in it. This phenomenology of being possessed with hatred for someone who has never done anything to you is not unique to these ancient people and is not unique to how they treated Jesus. I know you can all think of a current someone who is deeply hated by a vast number of people who have never even met him. Humanity hasn't changed much. When Christ came to earth, he put a veil over his majesty and his glory. Some people just could not see past that veil. And the sad irony of it all is that not only did Jesus not hurt them, but he actually came to save them. Humanity's rebellion against God demanded justice. Jesus divested himself of his own glory and submitted himself to treatment reserved for the worst of offenders. He vilified himself so that we wouldn't have to be villains. He honored God in a way he knew we would never be able to. Let's read verses 4 through 9. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, 
he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. More is said here about the suffering of Christ. We see how he humbled himself and remained obedient even unto death. Jesus was well acquainted with grief, and he did not shy away from it. He carried his burden of suffering without complaining over his lot in life. As difficult as his days were, he stepped up to each one of them and did not fold under their weight. He marched forward down a long road and never gave up until his mission was accomplished and he said, It is finished. Jesus was beaten and bruised, but probably the most difficult affronts happened when the people dishonored God and when the Father forsook Christ on the cross. For much of his public ministry, he was maligned and slandered by those who rejected his gospel. This slander of the tongue turned into assaults of the hand when he was arrested and executed. There was a mercy principle under Jewish law that didn't allow even the worst of criminals to be whipped more than 40 times. So typically they would stop at 39 lashes just to make sure that they didn't violate this law. But Jesus was scourged according to the law of the Romans, not the Jews. It's likely that his whipping was more severe than 40 lashes because Pilate intended the whipping to be his only punishment. It wasn't until the mob gathered and demanded Christ be crucified that we find out his whipping was but a preface to his execution. From the top of his head to the soles of his feet, he was covered in wounds and bruises but not one of his bones were broken. There was also insult to injury in the sense that it was wrongful punishment. He was charged with crimes he never committed and he faced recompense he didn't deserve. So many people in modern society speak of being oppressed. But what happened to Christ is a true picture of actual oppression. He was afflicted psychologically and physically. He took the oppression to heart, and although he endured it with immense patience, he didn't walk through it stupidly. He allowed his tears to be mixed with those of humanity who suffer this kind of oppression. He understood the reality that there are many who endure oppression with no one to comfort them. I really dislike the fact that the term oppression is bandied around so easily today. Of all the things you can do to a human being, oppression is one of the worst. It breaks down the body and the spirit until those who were once wise and stable fall into madness. But it didn't work on Jesus. His spirit never broke, and he kept full possession of his soul. Being made sin for our sake, Christ was arrested, judged, and condemned. In death, he was confined to the prison of a tomb where a stone was rolled in front to seal the entrance. His life was cut short despite the fact that he did so many good works. He was crucified between two thieves and made to look like the worst of the three. His body was laid to rest in a sepulcher owned by Joseph of Arimathea. It's interesting to note that even though Jesus was crucified with common thieves, he was laid to rest in a tomb separate from criminals. 
criminals who were crucified were typically just buried where their crucifixion took place, and tombs were reserved for the wealthy. God foretold Christ's tomb here in Isaiah, and by his providence he made sure that Christ was marked innocent even in his death. When you hear about the horrific things Christ endured and juxtapose that to his life of humility and benevolence, the natural question is to ask what he did to engender such hatred. The enemies of Christ indeed looked upon him and thought he suffered justly for his crimes. But they couldn't actually charge him with anything. They just hated him. Because they hated him and fancied themselves religious, they assumed God hated him too. This made them hate him even more. It was like a feedback loop of unfounded hatred. Despite the fact they had zero evidence against him, they concluded he was a blasphemer, a deceiver, and a threat to Caesar. For many of these people, the punishment verified the crime. Surely, if he could be flogged and crucified, he must have done something horrible. This happens when people get sick or fall on difficult times. Others around them ask what they did to deserve such a thing. No one is comfortable with arbitrary tragedy and senseless suffering. Christ was charged with perverting the nation and sowing discord. This couldn't be further from the truth. He had done no violence, never lied, and simply went around loving people and doing good. He was accused of being a deceiver, even though there was no guile in his mouth, and he never offended in word or deed. Even Pilate admitted that he found no fault in Jesus. The Roman centurion who presided over his crucifixion professed with certainty that he was a righteous man. Christ was fully innocent, and yet he was oppressed and afflicted. I don't know about you, but I don't think I could endure this kind of treatment quietly. But Christ never so much as spoke a word to plead his innocence. He freely offered himself up to suffer and die for us, and objected nothing against it. There was no scandal in the cross of Christ because he voluntarily submitted to it for great and holy ends. He certainly possessed the wisdom necessary to talk his way out of the sentence, but he didn't. He definitely had the power to resist anyone who might try to carry out his execution, but he didn't. He is the Lamb of God. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter without any hesitation or resistance. He demonstrated exemplary patience under affliction and meekness under reproach. His cheerful obedience to the will of the Father is the same will by which we are sanctified. He gave up his body, his soul, and his own life as an offering for our sins. Jesus took our place when he suffered and died, and he did it for our good. His death is the archetype of self-sacrificial love. We know he died in our place because we know that all of us stand guilty before God. Apart from Christ, every single person who has ever lived has sinned and thus fallen short of the glory of God. The entire human species exists under the stain of original sin. Every individual person, if you look close enough, is guilty of many actual transgressions. God designed us with an end goal in mind, and he designed us to navigate existence in a particular way. But we've alienated ourselves from our Creator and have gone astray from our destined path. Jesus calls humanity his sheep, which is an apt analogy. Sheep have a tendency to wander, and once they've wandered too far, they are unable to find their way home again. The reality of the human condition is that we are bent away from God and thus unable to return to Him on our own. Your lungs were made to breathe air. 
If I told you that you must breathe water instead, you wouldn't be able to. In the same way, original sin has warped your design so that you're in opposition to God. You can't find your way back to God on your own merit any more than you can breathe water. That's why he came to us, and to the cross. This corruption is not simply counted as infirmity, but also as iniquity. This implies that we have some choice in it. We have a choice of what we allow to influence us. If you sit on the throne of your own heart, then God will not influence you. You will be led and directed by your own corrupt appetites and passions. This malignity pits your own will against God's will. One of the problems with pitting your own will against God's will is that you don't know what's good for you. Our sins are our sorrows and our griefs. They are our sicknesses and our wounds. Original corruption sickens our souls and predisposes us to sin. The actual transgressions mar us and cause wounds. That's why, if it's not seared and senseless, your conscience feels pain and guilt when you sin. The mission of Christ was to make satisfaction for our sins and to save us from the penal consequences of them. By the will of the Father, the iniquity of all humanity was laid on the shoulders of Christ. Not only does he save us from our sins in the hereafter, but he saves us from our sins in the present moment. Without the Holy Spirit, there is no sanctification. Without Christ, there is no indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So without Christ, we would have been doomed to rot away with increasing levels of sin and therefore increasing levels of sorrow. The law was given to show us the holy character of God and the fallen nature of ourselves. It's like a mirror by which we can see the truth of our condition. Of course, seeing the truth of your condition results in immense pain and guilt. That is the curse of the law. But if we submit to the gospel of grace by faith in Jesus, then we are saved from this guilt and there is no curse. The decision to send Christ to make atonement for our sins was made in the eternal foreknowledge of God. The Father knew he must do it, and the Son did it in perfect accordance with his will. This was a transaction that had to be made by God, for God, and carried out through God. No one else has the unsearchable power required to do it. I mean, just think of all the billions of people who have ever lived. Imagine all of the wickedness that has been carried out through history. No one but God himself had the sufficiency of merit to cover all that evil and extend salvation to every soul who's faithful. Only God is able to make an offer of salvation which excludes none who don't exclude themselves. That is why Jesus is the only way to salvation. We can't be justified until our sins are removed from us, and Christ is the only one strong enough to carry the weight of them all. The Father laid the iniquity of humanity on Jesus, but Jesus was equal to the task and took it on voluntarily. He made himself responsible for our debts, and therefore restored to us that which he never took away. Taking on the weight of our sin meant bearing up under our grief and sorrow as well. God is not broken, yet he fed himself into a broken system and voluntarily clothed himself with the infirmities of humanity. He experienced the pain and issues that attend a fallen world as a consequence of human sin. Christ underwent the extremities of grief and said his soul is exceedingly sorrowful. I don't know about you, but I don't feel exceedingly sorrowful all the time. I suspect one of the reasons why life is not so bad for us is because Jesus took the weight of our sorrows onto himself so that the burden would be light and easy for us. 
the grief and sorrow associated with our sin should be enough to crush us. And I think it is if we don't have Jesus. That's why many people prefer self-deception over the heavy burden of truth. But when we come to Christ, he takes this burden away so that we can finally be free. This process was symbolized when sick people came to Jesus and out of his power and compassion he took their illnesses away. He took our sins away. Our sins were the crown of thorns on his head. Our sins were the whip that scourged his back. Our sins were the nails in his hands and feet. Our sins were the spear thrust into his side. The wounds and bruises inflicted on the body of Christ were a physical representation of the spiritual injury from which he rescued us. As a result, we may have peace and healing. Christ submitting himself to the wrath of God put to rest the enmity between God and humanity. Jesus made peace by the blood of his cross. And he did it most of all because he wanted to be reconciled to us. Human rebellion transformed us into persons who cannot coexist with the holiness of God. But he wouldn't let us go that easily. He did what was necessary to forgive our sins so that not only could we coexist with him, but we could enter into fellowship with him and be his friend. It is through this friendship that all which is good flows into us. So when you think about your life and all the happy moments you've had, the love and the laughter, the deep sense of meaning and purpose, understand that all of this was paid for. The suffering servant subjected himself to pain so that we might be at ease. He knew his justice was too much for us. He faced it himself so that we could have peace of mind in knowing our sins are forgiven. When you love someone, you want to see them happy and cheerful. Jesus took the burden so we could rest. Jesus grieved so we could smile. Jesus wept so we could laugh. And Jesus died so we could live. The cross purchased for us the Holy Spirit and the grace of God. The Holy Spirit comes into us and reverses the disease inside our souls. He balances us and puts us into a good state of spiritual health so that we can be fit to serve God and prepared to enjoy his presence. The cross breaks the dominion of sin. The cross is the primary reason we have functional societies today, and without it our prospects are not good. Christ's sacrifice resulted in the resurrection and his ascension to eternal honor once again. Jesus died as the Lamb of God and resurrected as the Lion of Judah. Express order was given from heaven to discharge him from the grave, and an angel came to roll away the stone. The crucifixion of Jesus was the payment of our debts. The resurrection of Jesus was the release of these debts. He rose from the dead never to die again. His earthly generation saw the seeds being planted for the untold spread of the gospel. What would the apostles think if they knew billions would come to Christ across thousands of years? Jesus knew, and it made him satisfied. Let's read verses 10 through 12. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. 
yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. For most of this chapter, Isaiah has been describing the sufferings of Christ with a hint of the glory to come. Now he really makes the shift to focus on the glory which followed Christ's sacrifice. Christ voluntarily submitted to the punishment of God. It was the Father who put the cup of suffering into the hands of Christ. It was the Father who laid our iniquities onto the shoulders of Christ. Despite the fact that it troubled him to the point of agony, Christ willingly allowed the Father to deliver him up for this. We need to understand something about pain here. It's true that Jesus suffered much grief and agony, but it's also true that both the Father and the Son were pleased with this work. It's like when you or your loved one undergoes life-saving surgery. The surgery itself might be painful and invasive, but overall you're pleased that you did it. God's salvation of humanity through Jesus Christ was the result of eternal counsel. It was the effectual method for saving us while advancing the honor of God. Jesus gave his soul as an offering for sin. He said that he came to earth not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Before Christ, the Jews had a sacrificial system where they gave bulls and goats as sacrifices for sin. They gave their livestock because their livestock was valuable to them. This sounds archaic to us, but in fact our justice system still works this way. If you get caught speeding, the police issue you a traffic citation that requires you to give up something valuable in recompense for your crime, namely your money. If our relationship with God remained such that we must sacrifice ourselves to atone for our sins, then not a single person would make it into heaven. None of us can sacrifice enough to atone for our own iniquity. In taking our punishment, Christ took our sins and laid them on himself. These very sins would have crushed us into the lowest pits of hell had he not done this. I think this is why when we depart from Christianity, we tend to lose forgiveness and redemption as well. Cancel culture is all about permanently ending anyone who offends you even one time. There is no path to redemption in cancel culture and nothing is forgiven. I think without Christ, we have to deceive ourselves about our own sins in order to prevent collapsing under the weight of our guilt. Many people who have committed a string of mistakes will resort to generating a fiction about their lives in which they are the victims and not the perpetrators. We do this because we haven't forgiven ourselves, and I actually don't think we can forgive ourselves without first being forgiven by God. We can't improve unless we're willing to see ourselves the way we really are. I don't think we can tolerate seeing ourselves the way we really are without the grace of God in our hearts. So, in a sense, I'm not sure we can really improve ourselves without first allowing ourselves to be forgiven in Christ Jesus. The wages of sin is death. Jesus poured out his soul unto death and made little account of it, as he knew laying it down was the appointed means of redemption and salvation for us. Christ let his life go, and in the same way his apostles gave their own lives for the gospel. He gave his body up to suffering, but he also surrendered his spirit. These he gave to death, even though he is the Lord of life. Not only was Jesus an intercessor for transgressors, but he was also numbered among them. We see this in the way he was crucified between two criminals, as if he were the worst one. Here's something to consider. The mob had to choose between Jesus and Barabbas as to which person would go free. Barabbas was a vile criminal. He was a traitor, a thief, and a murderer. 
Jesus had done virtually nothing but love, heal, and help people. They had no evidence to suggest he had done anything wrong, and even Pilate said he found no fault in him. Yet their hatred for Jesus was so strong that they were willing to set literally anyone free instead of him. Sound familiar? The people who hated Jesus maligned him throughout his public ministry. They called him a Sabbath breaker, a drunkard, and a friend to publicans and sinners. Jesus went to the cross to save these same people who hated him. He prayed that the Father would forgive them because they didn't know what they were doing. After his resurrection, Christ was restored to his former glory as God, but this time also as mediator. Jesus has the glory of an everlasting Father. He was born with the titles Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, Mighty God, and Prince of Peace. Believers today are the seed of Christ, purchased and purified by him so that they might bear much fruit. The word of God by which we are born again is his word. The spirit of God by which we are sanctified is his spirit. And the image of God which is impressed on us is his image. Jesus lives, so we shall also live, because he is the source of our life. Christ will see to it that there is a great increase of the faithful. There will be multitudes of us, so many as to be innumerable. He will not commit the care of his people to any other. Christ will provide over the affairs of his family forever. The increase of his government and his peace will have no end. Everything God endeavors to do prospers according to his will. His purposes shall take effect, and not one iota or tittle of them shall fail. This is probably the greatest news of all. The fact that God will not share the responsibility of redemption with anyone else means that we are in good hands. He lets ignorant and biased humans like us preach and teach about him, but when the rubber hits the road, his judgment is reserved for himself. Humanity's brightest minds are barely sufficient to maintain a society without going to war. But God is the one who upholds all things, and he is able to save to the uttermost. Sometimes it can feel like our society is falling away from God, and sometimes it can look like there are insurmountable challenges. But we can rest assured in knowing that whatever is undertaken according to God's pleasure will prosper. All throughout history, God has been able to do exactly as he wills, even through imperfect people. Cyrus was far from perfect, and yet he accomplished exactly what God purposed for him in releasing Israel from Babylon. So imagine Christ, who is perfect, doing exactly what was planned in the precise way it was orchestrated. Not a single mistake was made, and the results have prospered through time. As horrible as the death of Jesus was, when he looked ahead to it and saw the fruit it would bear, he was satisfied with the bargain. Let that sink in. God believes your life is valuable enough to sacrifice his own for. And he's been pleased in watching the construction of his church since then. The eternal salvation of souls is what God is after in all this work. You entering into the glory of heaven to be with him is enough in the sight of God. God is glorified, the faithful are justified, and Christ is satisfied. It was always the sustenance of Jesus to do the will of the Father. In the same way, we should seek to work for God's will as our primary source of meaning and purpose in this life. Christ bearing our sins has laid the foundation for our justification. It allows us to get out from under guilt, the pressure of which is enough to destroy us. Then it brings us into God's favor, which by itself is enough to make us happy. 
There are many people who are justified by Christ, indeed any and all who turn to him in faith. He didn't simply purchase the justification of eminent and remarkable people. He didn't die just for the moral heroes. He died for the masses, some of whom were loved by no one else in this life but him. It is by grace through faith in Christ that we are saved. This is simply our consent to the covenant of grace that Christ established on the cross. It's a free gift of grace because that's the transaction by which God is most glorified. If you could earn your way into heaven, you would glorify yourself. I want to make a point here. Christians have been arguing for generations over faith and works. Some say it's all faith and grace, so therefore live how you want. Others say your works are evidence of your faith. The most effective way of thinking about it is to separate salvation and discipleship. Your salvation exists in the domain of your faith. If you trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then you will be saved by His grace and not your works. End of story. But your discipleship is something different. Your discipleship takes place after you've established your relationship with Christ. Jesus wants you to live your best life. He's prescribed the mode of being that will result in you maximizing your own well-being and the well-being of others. You can choose to trust his prescription and learn everything you can from Scripture, thereby allowing God to sanctify you and shape you increasingly into his image. That is the best and most meaningful way to walk through life. If you put your faith in Jesus and then skip town on discipleship, my contention is that you will face negative consequences in this life. Your life will not be as good as it could be, and you will likely cause damage to yourself and others. I think it's possible to abuse God's grace so badly that your sins warp you into a person who is willing to forsake the faith that saves you. But it is simply the faith that saves you. Although you are saved by faith, discipleship and sanctification are so important that you will suffer stupidly and fall into all kinds of needless misery if you shirk these responsibilities. Christ has been given the glory of an incontestable victory and universal dominion. In the ancient days, dividing the spoil with the strong was unquestionable evidence of victory and recompense for the dangers of battle. Christ's sacrifice has resulted in his name being exalted above every other name. As a general who divides the spoil after victory, Christ has an abundance of grace and comfort for those who serve him. The glory of God is had by his conquest of principalities and powers, sin and Satan, death and hell, the world and carnality. These are the strong men which he has disarmed. By the grace of God, many will surrender themselves to be ruled, taught, and saved by Jesus. This chapter has been like a panoramic view of Christ's work on the cross. We plunged into the depths of his suffering. We witnessed the banality of evil in the human heart. We saw the Father, the Son, and the Spirit work in perfect cohesion to redeem our hearts. And most of all, we saw the never-failing love of our Savior. We saw him look into the faces of those blinded by hatred and forgive them. We saw the lengths he was willing to go and the cross he was willing to carry so we wouldn't have to. Isaiah chapter 53 is maybe the most famous passage in the Old Testament. I think the reason is because it delivers the heart of the gospel of Jesus. It shows us that we serve a God who wants more than anything for us to live. It reminds us that each cherished moment we spend with our loved ones, every smile and every round of laughter, has been given to us as a gift by God. 
despite the wickedness and the fallen nature of our world. There is so much in life that is a gift. These are the good things that outweigh the bad. These are the things which are a foretaste of what's to come when we enter into eternity with him. It was a long and difficult road, but he walked it. And today, we can have peace in knowing that he is there in our happiest moments and in our struggles. He is with us, always with us. If you enjoy this podcast, please rate it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to it. You can follow the MHB Podcast on Facebook or Twitter, at MHB Podcast. Tell your friends about it and share it on social media. If you'd like email notifications of new episodes or if you'd like to support my work directly, please consider becoming a paid subscriber on my website at mhbpodcast.com. This work is made possible by listener support, so your generosity is greatly appreciated. Thank you all for joining me, and I will see you in the next episode.